Habits and Health, Episode 16. Welcome to the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. Brought to you by an educator and coach for anyone who wants to create a healthier life. Here's your host, Tony Winyard. Welcome to another edition of the podcast where we give you ideas for habits that you can create to help your health. Today's guest is Jeff Gervitz and he runs a company called Dad Strength, which is all about taking care of yourself so that you can take care of the people you love. He's a real expert in many different aspects of health and also on many aspects of habit forming. He's a, also a tiny habits coach and he's a wealth of knowledge on so many things. And so I think you'll, you'll really enjoy this episode with Jeff. He gives some great information. Please do share the episode with anyone who you think would get some great value from it. I hope you enjoy the show. Habits and health. My guest today is Jeff Gerberts. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm pretty good. And this is, I think, this is the first time we've made a trip to Toronto on this podcast. So, uh, okay, so I'm going to do my, first... my best to represent admirably. <laughs> my first, is it Torontonian? When, what, what would you call a, a native Toronto? Yes. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, <laughs> although I'm not a native uh, Torontonian, to be fair. I, I grew up in Calgary in the West. But, uh, but yes, a Torontonian. Right. Okay. And you were, because you, just before we started recording, we were chatting and you said you've been there, what, 20 years now, wasn't it? Yeah, just about. And and how, for those who, who don't know Toronto, what, what was, what is Toronto most famous for? What is Toronto most famous for? That is a good question. Uh, for non-Canadians thinking it, it's the capital of the Canada, of, uh, of Canada, which it's not. Um, I would say in more recent years, uh, the food scene here has been really tremendous. Um, okay. So it's uh, there, there's incredible cuisine uh, in all shapes, sizes, and varieties. So that's that's been a, a wonderful part of living here. And don't you have? If I'm, I might be getting this wrong, but don't you have a pretty cool film festival there as well? True. Yeah, the Toronto International Film Festival is one of the big ones. Um, when I when I first moved up. Um, I would regularly attend. It's gotten to be a bit too much uh, of a zoo in recent years, but I'm definitely a movie guy. So it's always kind of uh, cool to see what's going on. Yeah. Cool. And, and work-wise, you're, um, well, actually, rather than me try and butcher what you do, do you want to explain huh. to the audience what you do? So since 2008, I've run a uh, gym in downtown uh, Toronto where we really try to you know, break down uh, the process of integrating fitness into your life and make it really accessible. Um, I think there's a lot of cultural baggage that comes along with that. Um, outside of that, uh, I'm, I'm always busy with something. Uh, we know each other through the Tiny Habits community, so that's mm. been a big part of my life over the last year. Yeah. And, and for those listening, I mean, we've, I've, I've interviewed one Tiny Habits coach that was about two months ago. Do you know Mark Shannon? I don't actually. Yeah, he's a he's a memory guy. He helps people with mem like memorize huge chunks of information. He, he's amazing. So yeah, I interviewed him on episode one, funnily enough, of, of this podcast. That's so cool. I'm always so impressed uh, by by people with incredible memories like that. That is not me. <laughs> it's not most people. No, he's um, Mark is quite. But actually, to be fair, I I got to know Mark a few years ago. 
because I was learning these techniques of how to remember large chunks of information. And mostly I was doing it because when I was speaking on stage, I didn't want to have to keep referring to notes. So it's far easier to learn these things than you would probably think. But anyway, that's a, that's a whole aside because that's not what we're talking about this episode. So, yeah, I mean, I really, and as you, you just mentioned Clubhouse and the reason, as I said to you before we, again, before we started recording, the reason I, I wanted you on the show, because I've heard you speak on Clubhouse many a time, and I just, I'm adored the wisdom that you give to, to the listeners, to the people taking, you know, asking questions about how they can implement habits in, in, their, in their life and they're struggling with certain habits. And, and you just time and time again, just knock it out of the park with this advice you give. So, um, yeah, I just thought, well, I've got to get some of that advice on this show to, for, for my audience. Uh, and, and you speak about all things sort of like health. And, but, well, and it was clear to me from listening to you on Clubhouse you have a lot more knowledge simply than than fitness you're it's, it's like pretty well-rounded your knowledge it seems well it's it's kind of you um you know i i can assure you any any sort of uh wisdom if you want to call it that that i've come by it has been through trial and error and just doing everything wrong for for many many years i think in the context of behavior change i have for well over a decade really been understanding that to be at the heart of what we do. I mean, it's kind of, it's almost absurd when you think of it that there's even a fitness industry. Why do we need to convince people that exercise is a good idea or, Mm. um, you know, eating for health is a good idea? And I'm not talking about elite sports or trying to be on the cover of a magazine. I'm just talking about living well. However, there's all this friction around it and there's so many misconceptions. So, Mm. Um, getting to the heart of, of the human component of this is, I think, what the, the particular challenge is. And, mm-hmm. I, and I suppose that that's what continues to sort of fascinate me and, and, and keep me involved with this stuff. You just mentioned uh, misconceptions. What would you say some of the misconceptions are? Oof. How long is this podcast? <laughs> um, I'm going to start with, with, I think, the biggest one. And this is It's this, I don't know, blame it on Protestant work ethic, I guess. But there's this idea that for your fitness to be successful, um, it has to be grueling. Mm. Everything's got to be really almost unenjoyable. And to Mm. to the point where people don't begin the process by asking, what would I like about this? Or what would make me happy? Where would I find pleasure in doing this? But just what is the most effective and, and maybe not even that question, what just feels the hardest? Um, how do I show people? How do I show myself that I'm tough, that I have willpower? Mm-hmm. The, the, whole, the whole conversation, and hopefully we'll get into this because this, this segues really nicely into tiny habits, mm-hmm. um, this whole idea that, that it is willpower dependent or motivation dependent, mm-hmm. wow, is, is such an Achilles heel for so many people. And, and if there's one phrase that I've heard more than any other over the years, it is, I know what to do. I just need to. And that's where I'll hear something about either willpower or discipline. Mm. And, and kind of what you were touching on just saying, I've, for quite a while now, I often use the phrase movement rather than exercise because exercise just seems to scare some people. And they yeah. have this whole image of what they think exercise is and and then I use movement, and it seems to I don't know be softer for people, and it's more acceptable or, or something. That makes sense. I like that, and and I've found the same. So what what do you think it is about exercise that that scares people? 
Wow. Well, you know, where does it start? Where do we get our, our information about what exercise is? Um, if you are young and athletic, you might get pushed into sport. And often, um, to this day, to this day, even at, at fairly high levels, there are a lot of coaches that operate under the idea that mental toughness is paramount. And, you know, I used to have to deal with this with coaches of combat athletes. And, and I'm like, these are professional fighters. These are people who have stepped into the ring or the cage many times who have gone through training camps, which are unbelievable. And we're sort I would like to think we're over that hump and we can be more strategic about what mm. we're doing. But people keep getting stuck there. Um, if you're in... Uh, if you're in school, uh, coaches might take that approach, and that is, and and might actually suck all of the fun mm. out of out of fitness. You know, and every parent, we you know we can't help it. Um, you know, every time my my son touches a piano key or a soccer ball, part of me is going, "Is he a prodigy? Is this what he's going to do?" And, and you know, and I'll let you know if something turns up, but. Um, I'm afraid he's four years old now and I'm afraid if he's really into something like baseball or football, what, what's that going to be like for him? Um, what are the other parents going to be like? Are they going to be shouting at their kids? I just, I, I don't have any patience for that and I don't know how I'll deal with it, you know, because it's just, they're, you know, they're going to be seven years old. Nobody's scouting them for the pro for the pros, for the major leagues. It's, it's really not a big deal. So, I think sometimes there's that influence. Um, there's what we get in the media, um, mm. this sort of classic training montage. It, it went mm. in there. Much of my life view as an adolescent was informed by, by Hollywood. And, um, you know, this idea that do something terribly that you hate, but just keep suffering through it. And somehow, miraculously, you, you become great, which is, by the way, which, which is not how skill acquisition works, not how mastery or deliberate practice works. But mm. we're, we're dealing with this... Um, this burden. I'll, I'll mention one more thing, which which I just call the you know the double down fallacy, which is, um, okay, I, I wanted to be exercising, I haven't been, I've I've let my fitness or my nutrition or whatever other health behaviors slip, and now I have to make up for lost time, as opposed mm-hmm. to just start where I am and move forward at a sustainable pace. So these mm-hmm. are just some of the misconceptions that I experience. And there's the whole body image thing doesn't doesn't help either, does it? No, where you know, and that can get really complex. Absolutely. Mm. Well, um, I mean, one of the things that was going through my mind when you were speaking just then is about, I guess, kind of CrossFit in a way hasn't helped with the. A lot of people have this image of CrossFit and about you know you have to punish yourself, you know, the pain and 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 so on, and in some ways. It seems that hasn't helped the the situation. I don't know. What, what, do you have any feelings on that? Yeah, uh, and I'll I'll do my best to to be semi politically correct here. Um, I think that okay. Let's let's start with what CrossFit does well. Hmm. CrossFit does community well. Um, the people who are coming and who are involved are really excited about it. I mean, that's the joke, right? That's the sort of classic joke. Um, you know. People, uh, a crossfitter can't wait to tell you about it um, or talk about how sore they are maybe, how tough their, their workouts were. And that's sort of a badge of honor. And, and I think there is something, it is a really um, bonding experience for humans to suffer together. 
that sort mm-hmm. of shared catharsis is a big deal. And, and I think they, they recognize that. Um, the other reason I think CrossFit was, you know, will, will kind of be an important chapter in our, in our history of physical culture was it was the first time, I think, in a, in a popular sense. I mean, there have always been garage gyms. Um, strength athletes just kind of recognize what appeals to them about the sport and just and find ways to move heavy stuff around. But um, CrossFit was on the heels. You know, the big box gym model was sort of conceptualized, I want to say, in the mid-'70s and was really rooted in, in uh, bodybuilding culture. And this idea of, all right, we're going to get a bunch of machines so that, A, we don't need a lot of um, skilled coaching, something you can mm-hmm. theoretically do on your own. And, and B, they all have a, a, a footprint, you know, a controllable footprint. You don't need a lot of space. And people mm-hmm. kind of rotated through these. And this isn't my, my joke, but I'll, I'll gladly seal it here. And they didn't know what to do with the women, so they put them in a room and made them dance. And that was sort of the, um, that was the big box gym model. Um, when we opened our facility in 2008, uh, CrossFit ha- had already sort of um, begun to get traction but wasn't well known at that point. And the fact that we had a big open space confused people. And multiple mm. people I remember back, back in the day would walk in and ask me, so are you still renovating? Or they were waiting for every square foot of space to be filled with, with machines and equipment. Mm. And... Um, so CrossFit did change that, let us know, okay, we don't need a luxuriously appointed space. We can pre- be pretty bare bones. We can mm-hmm. use unconventional tools. We don't have to necessarily spend a lot of money. Mm-hmm. All that's really positive. But, yeah, turning it into a suffer fest um, mm-hmm. for most people is not going to be sustainable. So, mm-hmm. um, And this happens all the time. And, and I think this comes back to that same idea. I know what to do. I've done it before. That's often an addendum. I've done it before. Um, I, you know, I just need to. And my question is always, well, why aren't you doing it? Why did you stop? Mm. And the answer is either people got injured or um, it required such high levels of motivation or, or such intense uh, recovery that once you fell out of that mode, it was really tough to get back in. Mm. And so that's... Um, you know, I, so the question, I think we really have to, when we judge these things, we have to look at them through a much longer uh, temporal lens. Mm. I, I did CrossFit a couple of years ago, and and, and I did like, and it may it may have sounded like I'm really dissing it earlier, and I, I did like aspects of it. But what, what I didn't like was that there was just almost this obsession with everything was anaerobic and nothing, there was hardly anything was aerobic and it was just, the balance was completely out of whack as far as I was concerned. Can we get into the weeds a bit on physiology? Absolutely. Okay. So, um, Charlie Francis, uh, is a, is, was a, a Canadian sprint coach. He died in, in 2008 and, and his work, you know, really influenced the way I think about things sort of, he's sort of infamously known for, uh, the Canadian sprinter, uh, ben Johnson, mm. who was the, the fastest man in the world or fastest person in the world and then, and then had his medal stripped. Um, mm. Drugs were very much, continue to be very much a part of, of the Olympic Games. Uh, mm. it, is, it is what it is. Um, but one of the reasons that Charlie Francis was so innovative was he didn't do hard for hard's sake. He mm. thought of sprinting as, as, as fundamentally as a motor skill. We are practicing going 
fast. So we need the requisite hardware to do that. But ultimately, we are, we are training our nervous systems. And he, um, in a way that was really counter to the times and is still very, very different than a lot of what you'll see, um, did, did something called high-low training. And he stayed out of, I think he called it a black hole in the middle. So you would either go very fast, um, 93% of your top speed or above, mm-hmm. or you would be doing aerobic work. Mm-hmm. Um, but what he stayed out of was the glycolytic zone. So, so, you can, so aerobic is pretty sustainable from, mm-hmm. from a, um, an energy production standpoint, but you won't have your highest output. Anaerobic, alactic, so we're just going into the, in, into the ATP uh, we have stored here. Now, I don't, I don't know how, how it works in the UK and Canada. Um, all anybody can tell you who's been through junior high or maybe high school uh, biology is that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. You mm-hmm. use that terminology? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember a, a junior high teacher saying, okay, okay, tell me what it does, but don't say powerhouse of the cell. And, and three different people raised their hands and said exactly that phrase, much to his, his dismay. Um, but that's your stored um, sort of uh, fuel for muscular contraction. Now, we can make it. Um, uh, the, the, the glycolytic or the anaerobic lactic pathway, you can, you, can, um, you can produce energy there. It won't be your peak output, but it is also really fatiguing and, and may not um, be ideal for... Uh, longer-term uh, athletic development. So when we used to work with fighters, we would recognize that's part of the sport, or wrestlers. So we would prep them pre-competition for this. But outside of pre-competition, we stayed well out of that. Um, mm. That is also where things feel the hardest. Mm. And a lot of CrossFit just gravitates right to that zone. So you're not going to be performing optimally, uh, which requires um, shorter work periods and longer rest periods. But you will also be um, really kind of beating yourself up where you need extended recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so just, uh, you know, just sort of, I guess, nitpick from a, from, um, a physiological or an athletic development standpoint. That, that's not how I would train anybody really outside of specific competition prep. It's not even how I would train someone for CrossFit. Mm. No. Well, you're, you're more susceptible to injury as well, aren't you? Well, we, we all... Um, when you're, when you cross over, uh, past your, your anaerobic threshold. So there's sort of a point where, um, your aerobic system has done everything. It's, it's given you everything it can give, doesn't have any more. Now we have to start dipping into that. You start to fatigue very quickly. You start mm-hmm. to, your, your thinking becomes less clear and you're more likely to make mistakes. If you are a combat athlete and you can dictate the pace and you can lure your opponent into that zone, even if they're technically superior, you're, you're really going to level the playing field because their, their, um, their functional skills will drop pretty quickly. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons people are more likely to get injured. It's not mm. necessarily what they're doing, but they're, they're st- the state they're in uh, mm. when they're doing it. I mean, there's some other conversation around that, but, but that'll do, I think. <laughs> so, well, let's get back to tiny habits. So, how yeah. have you? I'm wondering how you applied once you started learning the whole tiny habits framework. How did you apply that to what you do in, in the gym? Good question. So, you know, I've been I've been very interested and involved in in the the science and discussion around behavior change for well over a decade. 
Um, my experience was most stuff, most stuff didn't work and some stuff worked, but not reliably. Mm. So I read tiny habits as just sort of, you know, it almost perfunctorily like, okay, I'll read this book as well. Just get this out of the way. And as I got through it, I was like, Oh my goodness, this is this all, everything that I knew, everything that I had figured out or cobbled together that worked was mm. in there, was codified, um, all better than I had personally laid it out as well as, you know, with some, some missing pieces that I hadn't figured out. And I mm. recognized, I recognized right away how, how valid and important it was. Um, and so how do we apply it is, is sort of the challenge to, to work with tiny habits. You need, you need people to get over two humps. The first mm. one Actually, well, <laughs> we'll talk more about the first one. The second one is celebration. Is, um, is, is the practice, the skill of, of celebrating your wins, of your successes, of giving yourself some praise. And a lot of people really struggle with that. I, mm-hmm. I am a terrible natural celebrator. This really took mm-hmm. some doing for me personally. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not an effusive person in that way. And the, f- the first really tough bit, which is more of an intellectual challenge than an emotional one, is the value of doing something small. Mm-hmm. And I remember struggling with that. I was walking home one evening thinking about this and, and saying, ah, okay, I get it. And we've been talking, in, in behavior change, we've been talking about shrinking the change since forever. Okay, bring it down. You want to meditate for 20 minutes. Great. Well, maybe, maybe we'll bring it down to 10 minutes or five minutes. But the idea of 30 seconds, you know, or something like that for people, I notice in myself immediately uh, 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 this knee-jerk reaction of going, nope, nope, you can't do, impossible. You can't do anything with that. And what that let me know, that signal in the moment let me know that not only had I not tried that, uh, or, or was I unwilling to try it in the moment? I had not been trying it. I, I had definitely not tried it in years, maybe ever. And you just sort of realize that if you want to do something different, if you want to reach a new state, it's not going to be by, by virtue of doing the same stuff over and over again. So I had to make that, that intellectual leap. Mm-hmm. And now I can, you know, we can talk for hours about what the value of small is and why. But mm-hmm. um, once we get people past those two sort of friction points, we can talk about how to apply it anywhere. It's, it's, it's like water. You know, you can, you can pour it into any shape. Um, you know, like, uh, like Bruce Lee used to say, uh, you pour it into a bowl, it becomes a bowl. You pour it into a glass, it becomes a glass. And I, I find that the Tiny Habits has that sort of universal um, flexibility to it. For, for people listening who are maybe not so familiar with Tiny Habits, can you explain why, well, why celebration is an important part of it and how it helps with the whole, well, yeah, no, let's maybe more about tiny habits and why celebration is an important part of it. Okay. So, um, the, the easy sort of way to, to think about this is the ABC construction where we have an anchor, a behavior and a celebration. Your anchor is, we could call, uh, also a prompt. This is what reminds you to do the thing in the first place. Your behavior in this case is going to be a tiny habit. And the celebration, the reason we do that um, functionally is that uh, how we feel 
is very much tied in to our ability to remember things. Emotion and memory are very um, tightly coupled. And in this case, positive emotion. So BJ, uh, BJ Fogg would say, uh, we change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. Um, this, this is very true. I, I would sort of add to that, um, that if we are trying to live in a way that um, has meaning and where we are enjoying our life, not just doing hard things because we were told that this is how you become successful and then, I don't know, uh, walking down this path that you don't like for years and years and then suddenly, you know, for, expecting to, to reach a certain point of, of uh, external success and suddenly feel happy. This is not what I've seen. I don't think that's how humans work. So I almost think of it as this subtle sort of signal of what paths to take. When, when we have a bunch of different paths in front of us um, and different choices, that's one of the signals we can listen for. Well, these all seem to have value. They all seem to be uh, approaches we could take to being successful, but which ones have the most meaning, sort of have the most joy factory installed? And I think the more attuned we can become to those signals, the more, uh, you know, and I'm not saying be, be a, a hedonist. That's, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. But the more we can kind of look for that component of value in what we're doing, uh, the more reliably we will find um, that we've taken paths that not only lead us to success, but have sort of a, an implicit value to them. Mm. Um, so that's, that's the ABC. Should I pause there? Well, and, and so on the, the, you mentioned before that you struggled with the celebration part, and, and, and I did as well. I mean, I think, mm. I, I don't, mm. I mean, British men are kind of almost famous or infamous for the not showing emotion and so on. And I wonder what it's like in, in Canada. I, I would say, assume hey, less so. We're a former colony. We, we've got that baggage. <laughs> um, you know, a friend of mine, um, in, in a discussion about men and emotions, suggested that, well, perhaps men struggle so much uh, because our palette of emotions range from uh, pretty shitty to okay, I guess. Like, that's what we've got. Um, so so the, the ability to describe emotions, to be more attuned to, to nuance, and it is, we, we haven't been given that sort of cult, education culturally, Maybe, maybe not by our, our parents. You know, things are changing in, in some really positive ways. I, I, you know, a big part of my, my son is four, and part of his junior kindergarten ex- experience is um, learning that vocabulary of emotions, being asked every day, hey, what things fill your bucket? How's your engine running? They'll ask. Um, and, and so, so te- finally teaching those emotion regulation skills as part of a, of a curriculum Mm. I mean, feels really important and feels mm. like, like it's long overdue. Uh, but, you know, for myself, not, uh, you know, I'm not a big, I'm not going to dance. You know, so, and, and sometimes people, I think that's the first resistance, right? Uh, people experience, all right, we've got to celebrate. Well, I'm not going to yell hooray and wave my arms in the air. I'm not going to, um, you know, do a dance or a song, uh, a little soft shoe in the street how can I do this? And, and, you know, my first advice would be don't do something that feels inauthentic. Mm-hmm. We just have to figure out um, what's going to work for you. Uh, BJ refers to this as your natural celebration. Mm-hmm. For me, I tried so many things. I got, I got downright weird about it, Tony, as I tried to come up with, with these elaborate approaches to celebration. One day I was listening to a podcast, uh, somebody that I like and respect very much was speaking, and he said something 
that I really connected with and I found myself saying yes. And that was my first hint of what a, a, a natural celebration was. But me being me, even that, I'm not going to do, I was alone. I'm not going to do that in public. And um, the things that have really worked for me personally have been to really think about meaning. What's important to me? What are my values? And connect it to that. I've also, and this is sort of, it's embarrassing to say, um, but I realized going through this process that I'm a terrible smiler. Um, I have what my wife refers to as a resting murder face. And um, I wasn't smiling a lot. And even the act of smiling worked. And in moments that I am feeling too shy to smile, I can even begin. I can just gently tug, feel the first um, hints of muscular activation at the corners of my mouth. And that still works. So it doesn't have to be, um, y- you know, a, a Disney-style production of what your, your celebration is. I'm curious to hear how you sort of navigated that challenge. Well, similar. I mean, I, I, um, I guess I just, I just kind of say to myself, yeah, that was good. Or, or you know, so it's not, it's, it's hardly going over the top by any means. It's, and, it, and it's, it's very much... And often I don't actually verbally say it. It's just kind of in my head. I mean, yeah, I did a good job there. Or I, or I did that or, or something along those lines. You know. But even acknowledging that, and I think that that is a skill um, and it's an important skill unto itself because if we're going to uh, assess our success, if we're going to be clear on what worked and mm. what didn't work, you want to make a little tick in your mental diary and again, so part of this is just intellectually acknowledging, oh, this, I set out, you know, I said I was going to be consistent with, could be anything, drinking water, um, you know, uh, saying hello to people on the street. People are all feeling a little d- disconnected right now. Um, so, you know, being friendly, I think, is, is a wonderful habit um, to integrate and to just say, Oh, I did what I set out to do. And if your self-image is, and a lot of people struggle with this, oh, I always give up, I always quit. Well, that's the other beautiful thing about tiny habits is we can move the goalposts wherever Mm -hmm. we want them to uh, to be and continue to move them until we are successful near 100% of the time. And if you Mm -hmm. haven't tried it, I I highly recommend it. And um, now we have almost a better internal system of metrics and self-appraisal for what's working and what you can reliably do. And so even from just a skill perspective, um, this becomes really important because you can place your bets about new habits, about new skills, about new challenges in a really reliable way. And of course, the positive emotion just makes it easier for you to remember these things. Mm. I, I was interviewing a lady called Dr. Andrea Pennington, who's a, she's a specialist in compassion and self-care. And and she, I lo- one of the things that she said, which I really loved, she was talking about how how brutal many people are to themselves and how self critical and and so on. And and she she said, I, f- I forget exactly how she said it, but it was basically um, when a f- the way that a friend can help someone who has that sort of destructive self um, talk is when they hear them say things like, oh, I'm so stupid or I'm an idiot or whatever the case may be, to say, don't talk to my friend like that. And it, you know, it may not, it may be difficult. They may, may not be understood at first, but then they'll understand, oh, yeah, yeah, you're my friend. I don't want you talking to yourself like that. You know, you know that, that's so great. So many people, uh, we see this a lot of times in caregivers, parents, 
people who are incredibly nurturing to mm. other people. But if we ask mm. them, would you ever talk to your, to somebody else like that? Not in yeah. a million years. Mm. Um, but, but sometimes it's their old habits. Um, sometimes they were formed before even our brains have finished maturing. Um, and I think um, it's also you know, useful to realize that it is not self is not a binary. It is not, not every thought. Uh, it's you, but it's not all of you. And we can have thoughts um, of different types, at, you know, at the same time. And so just, you know, recognizing, all right, well, that, that's, that's the asshole part of my brain. And, and, and he's quite vocal, but I also have a kind and compassionate part of my brain. And, mm-hmm. and so one of the tiny habits that I, I um, incorporated for myself is when I notice that I'm um, lingering on something negative, I will mm-hmm. spend at least twice as much time focused on something positive. So mm-hmm. I, will, I will just start there. And um, because I, we do need, we have a negativity bias as humans. There's a reason mm-hmm. our species is still around and, and we are sort of um, hardwired to be aware, extra aware of danger, mm-hmm. things that will kill us or, or harm us. And so we have to, for that reason, be extra deliberate um, about counterbalancing that. Um, especially since most of us are fortunate enough to not have to worry about physical survival on a day-to-day basis. Mm. What, what habits would you say have made the biggest difference to your life? The first habit that was really powerful for me, um, I wasn't even, I was maybe a third of the way done the book and uh, uh, the concept of pearl habits which is really, I think a lot of credit goes to, to Linda Fogg, to BJ's sister. Um, and, and, and so normally when we talk about, you know, I mentioned that ABC construction. So we have our anchor, um, our behavior, and our, our celebration. So the anchor, most of the time we talk about uh, an existing action. So not a, not a calendar reminder or a post-it note, because most of these things just become white noise after mm-hmm. a while. Um, but if we look at behaviors, because we already have a bunch of habits, we're very successful at creating them. So whether it is after I turn the coffee maker on in the morning, after I pour myself a glass of water, um, after I put my feet on the floor in the morning, um, you know, mornings are, are, are particularly stable in terms of habits. So we use these actions um, as, as our anchors, but we can also use internal sensations, and those could be bodily sensations like noticing hunger or needing to go to the bathroom. But they can also be things like anxiety or anger mm. or sadness. And um, Pearl Habits, I mean, it's, it's, it, even the name is wonderful because from this irritant, we produce something beautiful. Mm. And all of a sudden, so I was, believe it or not, um, about a year ago at the beginning of, of this global pandemic um, with, with questions about health, where, where do we go? I mean, at least it's sort of a known quantity. Now, we didn't even know, can I touch this package that was delivered? How far can, you know, do I need to stay away from people? There was so much uncertainty. I didn't know if my business was going to survive. So with all this anxiety and anxiousness inside, I just uh, created the habit when I notice that I'm feeling anxious. So, and I always sort of preface this because you you won't, you can't guarantee you'll always do it. But when you notice Mm -hmm. that it's happening, we, we can apply it. So when I notice that I'm feeling anxious... I will take two mindful breaths. Mm. That was it. As it turned out, I had a lot of those prompts. Um, and all of a sudden, what had previously been this, um, this negative experience 
became an ally and allowed me to practice mindfulness dozens, at least, maybe hundreds of times a day. And it had an incredible impact on my uh, state of mind and mental well-being. And so knowing that um, if you are having persistent internal experiences that are not pleasant, that are not the way you want to be, um, it's this incredible piece of internal judo. And now you can you can leverage those and and har- it's energy, you know. And I, you know, you could argue that that anxiety is is an energy or a prompt that we haven't been able to act on. And so, rather than go, oh, I should I should start meditating, or I need to start going to the gym, or I should work this out to in the moment, as soon as it comes up, have something. And that's why tiny can be so powerful. There's no mm-hmm. pause. There's no hesitation, um, or or waiting. Uh, it, it can really be transformative. And that was definitely the experience for me. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe that creating healthy habits should be easy. If you know a friend or a loved one who might be interested in learning simple habits to improve their health, then please share this podcast with them. We also invite you to subscribe and to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Now, back to the show. Have you read any of the other sort of well-known books on habits, such you know, Atomic Habits and Power of Habit, and, and so on? Have you sure, read any of those? Yeah, things? yeah. And what, what were your thoughts on those? Atomic Habits is is a, a wonderful book. It is a, um, a summary. It's almost um, it reminds me of reading the Russian manuals on or the translated Russian manuals on different types of uh, physical development. It's just sort of a collection of methods, mm-hmm. um, and so it's interesting, um, but it's there are things that you would already apply if you know where to, where to place them. Tiny Habits is almost a bit more of a textbook. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, BJ is an academic and it comes across, so it's really clearly and easy, you know, uh, cleanly written and easily accessible. Um, but there's that sort of um, thread of building skills, building knowledge, how to test and iterate it. Um, I guess the power of habit. So when when I think back, so if we do, if we want to do a roll up of all the all the books on this stuff. Uh, the first one that I'm aware of that really sort of entered popular consciousness was uh, was psychocybernetics. Mm, um, Max, Maxwell, Maxwell Maltz, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Maxwell, yeah. And I want to say that was in the late '60s, maybe '67. Mm. And uh, that's where the myth of the the 21 days to to create a habit comes mm. from. Um, the power of habit was sort of, was useful in giving people a mental model. So, um, I wouldn't say that it exactly works like this, but the idea of here's your, here's your prompt and your, your action and your reward talking about, um, dopamine, talking about our, our expectations and looking at some of the research was, was really useful in getting the conversation going. Uh, atomic habits, I think, uh, my favorite part of that book was talking about the transition um, into identity. And, um, there, I'll, I'll tell you a story maybe, um, from my experience, we have, uh, uh, a wonderful guy who's part of our, our, uh, fitness community named Adam, who, when I first met him, uh, said to me, that was, that was within a, a, a moment or two of meeting said, I'm not a gym person and explained to me all the reasons why he was not and, and why fitness had not worked, but he was willing to give things a try. Is a lovely man, and we bit by bit we we began to make things work. And he transitioned from um, being not a gym person to 
I think still not a gym person, but somebody who, who was showing up consistently and, mm-hmm. and was willing to work hard. And this continued to sort of morph. It really became part of his life. And, and he uh, wrote me this email. He was on the East Coast visiting friends. He was at a pub hanging out. And um, a, couple of, a couple of friends were talking about fitness, talking about working out. And they sort of paused and looked over at him and said, hey, Adam, you're a fitness guy. What, like, what do you think about this? And he realized that, um, you know, it had, the transformation had sort of been complete from um, those sort of tinglings internally to the way he had, had thought about himself. First by, well, at least, but I do the work to becoming more comfortable and familiar for this becoming part of his life to the point where on a long enough timeline, other people will begin to see the, the signs of that. And without him presenting, he's an unpretentious person, he's soft-spoken, he would never show up, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't roll into the pub in, you know, in, in microfiber, uh, you know, arms bared or anything like that. But people just recognized this in him. And so mm-hmm. that was that sort of um, planting the seed internally, not, not necessarily speaking about it, um, all the way to that blooming to the point where people uh, recognized uh, mm. that through his actions, the way he behaved, what his knowledge was, um, and I guess the way he looked as well, externally. Mm. I don't know why this thought just came into my head, but I'm going to change the subject quite a bit. Well, change what we've been talking about anyway. What does, what does the word health mean to you? That's broad. <laughs> that, is, um, that is big, right? <laughs> health, you know, I guess we could we could think about it in a, in a couple of different ways. Um, the first the first priority is to get rid of anything mm. that will mess with your ability to survive or thrive. Um, so before we start choosing uh, very technical or detailed methods, is there anything in your life right now that is clearly not congruent with that? Um, is there, is, is there uh, an injury or an illness? Is there, is there a habit? Or, you know, if you're, if you're smoking three packs a day, um, we may not need the highest powered nutritional supplements or the most technical training. Some of these wins are really easy just by not doing something that, that's clearly not in your benefit. Um, once we clear, um, you know, sort of obviously innocuous inputs from the system, then, then what is the question? And so fit, fitness would have been an easier question for me to answer, Tony. You know, I, and I, I would talk about adaptability primarily in that I like to think that anyone um, to be fit is, is uh, fit is, is really a specific kind of situation, but in general, to be kind of three to six weeks out from being competent in any kind of physical activity, not, not being the best in the world necessarily, but just being able to participate and learn, not having any obstacles to um, developing skill. If you have to get low enough, if you have to move fast enough, if you have to change direction, can, can you do that? Health itself um, is much more broad. So we have our physical health, but we also have our cognitive and emotional health sort of the relational components of things. We have our environmental health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on my, on my to-read list uh, today is, is something that's talking about um, racism in the context of, of public health. And, and there's been some, some real progress in that discussion because if you are living in a system 
that automatically removes opportunities or increases stresses for you. That is part of the big picture. Um, mm. and, and, and so our, our health in that sense, um, and the things that either support or hinder it extend well, you know, outside of the, the, uh, the physical borders of our body. Mm. And what, what, I mean, there's, you, you touched upon fitness there because fitness and health, are, there's a difference, isn't there? They're not the same thing. A lot of people seem to think that if you're fit, you're deaf, that means you're healthy. And if you're healthy, that means you're fit. And it's, Oh, the, the, you know, the classic example is the, uh, bodybuilder about to walk on stage. I mean, a lot of those, those people are a stiff gust of wind away from keeling over. Um, their, their energy is so incredibly low. Their liver enzymes have dwindled down to about zero. Um, you know, the, it is so hyper-specialized. So competition and, and optimal performance um, in the moment uh, particularly in an athletic context, are not always the same as health. Uh, there mm. are trade-offs to be made. And I, I think it's really important to recognize. So, um, you know, and that, that's one of my favorite things I think about. Um, if we talk about strength training, for example, it's different. If you are a power lifter in competition, you are um, doing your final squat of the day, trying to set a record, and your knee doesn't feel 100% right, I'm not talking about catastrophic breakdown, just a little discomfort. You're going to push through it. If, you know, um, you're, you're at the end of, um, whether it's a, a, an MMA or a footy match, and, and you know, you don't, you don't feel great or your shoulder feels like perhaps it dislocated a little bit, you're going to finish. Hmm. That's what competitors do, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But there's a difference. If I'm in the gym, hmm. if I'm doing some barbell rows or cable rows, my shoulder doesn't feel 100%. I'm just going to stop. Mm. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nothing's on the line um, other than my ability to come back and do this again and have quality, enjoyable workouts. So you have that freedom and flexibility. Uh, the stakes are so much lower, and I think that's freeing. Mm. Well, and that brings me on to recovery and the, and the importance of recovery. Mm-hmm. Where do you want to go with recovery? What should we talk well, about for recovery? And, and, it, and it's something I, I have talked about with other guests because, and I guess the reason I come back to it a lot is because I, I just feel it's so neglected and so there's just not enough importance given to it by too many people. Yeah, uh, it, it's sort of, you know, the, the rumblings in, in the fitness industry is that recovery will be sort of more trendy over the next year. It's, I mean, that, that's the way it's been for maybe the last year and a half, two years. Um, but we do have to recognize that, that um, exercise is a stress. Not all stress is negative. There is just a sweet spot. If we're understimulated, we don't adapt. If we're overstimulated, overstressed, we, we also can't adapt. We, we've um, exhausted our uh, sort of adaptive reserves. Um, so we, we stress ourselves, we, we apply measured stresses in a way that we can adapt um, positively. And so we need two things. We need, we need the right dosage, too low or too high, and it's not productive. Um, too low is merely not productive. Too high could also be dangerous. And, um, and then we need some ability to recover from it. If you're recovering immediately... Uh, or you're repeating the same thing day after day, 
it's either because we have undershot, which is okay. I mean, maybe, maybe we've shot precisely right. We need something that is that sustainable, but more likely, um, we are not recovering sufficiently. We have, we have sent all these signals to our body to repair tissues, um, to build new neural connections, to myelinate pathways. Um, so we need the raw material. Uh, so protein is the obvious nutrient of choice, but we, we need uh, fat too. Most of the nervous system and brain is made of fat. Um, so that needs in place. We need, you know, it needs to be in place. We need the micronutrients to support all this development. Um, so much of this happens during sleep. So if we are chronically under-recovered, uh, we're, we're not going to be at our best. Mm. Now, is, is that the direction you were going or did you have something else in, in mind? Yeah, well, it is that. And I also, it just seems, and I guess part of it is the reason I've, I guess I've talked about this a few times in, in different episodes is because hearing different people in different gyms that I've gone to and different people that I've been helping and they, I think there's a, there's a, a real misunderstanding of what recovery is. And so some, I mean, I, for example, when I used to go to CrossFit and some people's idea of recovery was, Oh, I, on Thursday afternoon, I had a couple of hours off and, and that was recovery. And then, and then for other people, it was, well, I, I have two days off every week. I don't do any training. And is, and it's not necessarily linked to how much activity they're actually doing and, and what's involved in, in their, how much work they're doing. And, you know, there's, it, it's just a very vague, I, I, th- I think basically just a lot of people just don't really have an understanding of what recovery is. Yeah, it's kind of abstract, and it is it is tough. And a lot of the type A's of the world, the only time I've ever gotten traction on those discussions is when I sort of tease at the idea that they'll be able to do more. For some people, that's the only reason they would buy into recovery at all. We're, we're sort of coming off this idea that the healthier you are, the less you need to sleep and the less you need to eat, which is just not the case at all. What, what I find um, to be a more useful frame is to build some kind of metrics around performance. Mm. How do we know when you're performing well? Which seems like an important question if you want to be a high performer. So how do we even track that? What are our measures? Um, So, you know, we might use, for an athlete, we might use repeated vertical jumps as an example. Um, We, you know, something that's a little more tied to your nervous system. There are also ways to, to give you clues, such as measuring heart rate variability, um, but you want to form a global picture. I would never rely on only one metric, but I would look at how things are trending. And then I would play around and ask, because we don't want to over-recover. We don't want to recover, you know, s- spend more time recovering than necessary if we're really driven. Mm. But when do we see, if we come back and repeat this work the next day, is it of an equal quality? And if the answer is no, you know, there's a good chance we're under-recovered. And, and, you know, what I'll mention about this is if you are really driven and competitive, um, let's say, so we'll, we'll talk about working at a, um, you know, a perceived rate of exertion. How hard is this on a scale of one to 10? As an example, we might say, all right, well, I, I'm doing, we're not, we can't, it's not possible to work at 10 out of 10 every day, um, unless you're absolutely a beginner. Right, because you're not even neurologically efficient enough to, to dig into that. But let's say you're you're mo- intermediate or advanced athlete, and we're, we want to work at about a seven and a half, eight out of ten today. And that um, that effort, the way that feels, translates into a certain output. Oh, I lifted ninety uh, percent of my my max weight 
for three reps on a deadlift, um, you know, and so on and so forth. We have these sort of um, external metrics. So just because you're under-recovered does not mean you can't come in the next day and do the same thing. Mm -hmm. That is often the case. However, the question we want to ask is, what is the cost of doing business? And mm -hmm. if we need to be filled with stress hormones um, to be able to get that job done, and again, you know, competitive people rise to the occasion, and sometimes we really need to. But if this is just training, if this is um, not a competition, if it's just designed to make you better, the question is, by showing up and working now at, say, a 9.5 out of 10 to get the same work done, mm -hmm. what's the cost of that? What, how does that impact recovery? How does that I impact re injury risk? Mm -hmm. Right? And so um, it's not, we don't just look at what did you get done. We look at how did it feel? What did it take to do that? Mm -hmm. And if it felt like it was um, far more stressful, um, it required a much higher level of, of emotional arousal, of activation, then that may actually be slowing down your progress through a longer lens. Mm. Listen, it's gone, we've, 52 minutes has gone already, and, and there's so many other subjects I want to cover here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch to talk about some of your, your reading. I know that you, you like reading, and you've got, you sent me some of the stuff that you've been reading recently. I actually downloaded that Scott Barry Kaufman book today, The Transcend Book. Great. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. That looked, that looked fascinating. But yeah, do, do you want to tell us about some of the, the books that you like to read and what you've been reading recently? And... Yeah, I mean, I'm not much of a fiction guy. It's tough. It's got to be just the right sort of level. I don't want to be punished by my fiction. I think I mentioned Thomas Pynchon. Um, but I also, I want it to be well written. Um, I'm enjoying one of our, one of the members of our community actually writes short crime fiction. So I do, uh, his name is Peter Sellers, which is pretty easy to remember. He has a book called Kickback. So I've been reading that, but mostly it's nonfiction. Yeah. Transcend by, by Scott Barry Kaufman, where he's, um, looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs through an evidential lens and saying, okay, what, what do we have from a research standpoint that actually, you know, substantiates that he's got a bit of a different perspective. So I think that's really interesting. Um, I'm reading Adam Grant's think again, he's an organizational psychologist and I'm, I'm just really enjoying the book. Um, mm. it's about questioning our assumptions and, um, you know, overcoming our sort of cognitive biases and the parts of us that make us human. Um, that's a fun one. Uh, I'm, I'm geeking out a bit. I'm not much of a, you know, I don't understand all of the math, quite frankly. Um, but I'm, I'm reading uh, uh, Mandel, The Mandelbrot Set is, is the, probably the most well-known fractal. And I love thinking about, um, you, you know, the, the, his great observation was all this talk about shapes, about these flat, you know, these perfect squares and circles and triangles. Nature doesn't have any of that. Nature has this irregularity. And we, when we look at systems that work, um, that have integrity, that work on a, you know, on a, on a tiny level and work on a macro level, um, we don't see these discrete shapes. We, we, see, we see chaos, but chaos that repeats in, um, it's this paradox of, of chaos that repeats in an orderly way. And I think anything that we're really going to learn, um, we're going to draw from nature. Uh, and, and so that's really been interesting. So that's sort of, I'm, I'm the kind of person that likes to, you know, uh, connect the dots between things that seem unconnected. And, and so that's really been impactful for me, you know, over these last few months as I, as I think about all, all kinds of different challenges. 
if if people want to find out more about you and the um, any services that you offer for people and, and so on and social media, where where would they go to? Uh, you can visit uh, Bang. Uh, bankpersonaltraining.com, which is our, our website. So we, we deliver a lot of online services, including physical presence, which is our program for, uh, where we use movement and um, an exercise for, for mental well-being. So we, we approach it from the perspective, how do we boost mood, uh, boost cognitive function? Uh, and so that's really been uh, a lot of fun to do. We use a lot of tiny habits in that. Um, it's, it's been really important in the approach um, I am on, what am I on? Find me on Clubhouse, uh, more likely. And, and so my name is spelled G-E-O-F-F-G-I-R-V-I-T-Z. Um, you can, you can uh, email me, Jeff, same spelling, at, at uh, Jeff at Bang Personal Training. Happy to chat. I don't know, is that enough? <laughs> I was, well, for, I'm terrible at this part of it. <laughs> I want, for people who maybe aren't so familiar with Clubhouse, do you want to... Talk about the kind of things that you, the tiny habits on Clubhouse and how it is you're helping people on, on the tiny habits rooms in Clubhouse. You know, I'm such a fan of, of BJ Fogg and um, not just because he's a smart person, but um, he's really trying to be a force for good in this world. I can say mm. that pretty sincerely. And so we, we have a tiny habits club on clubhouse. So it's audio only. If you're not already familiar with it, I think it's really neat. It's the only social media, uh, that I've been excited or optimistic about. Uh, and it's not to say there isn't nonsense on there, but on the whole, people are very positive and supportive and collegial. Um, you hear these sort of, you can't, you can't fake expertise really. And you can't fake authenticity. Um, we hear, this in people's voices. And so we run all these tiny habits rooms and people are just there coaching, giving it all away mm. uh, for free on the platform. So anybody who, who raises their hand, wants to ask a question or get a little bit of guidance are really uh, kind of getting love bombed um, and getting these really fantastic coaches. It's a wonderful community. We must be running in excess of 10, 10 rooms a week now on all kinds of topics and, and applying tiny habits to all kinds of challenges from uh, vocational selection to uh, mindfulness to exercise. Yeah. And, and kids, I mean, it's, this, it's a real wide range of, of topics and, and a real wide range of questions as well that, that come in on, on some of the rooms. Yeah, it's fine. And, I mean, for, and for, so if anyone isn't, I mean, and some people I don't even know what Clubhouse is still because it, you know, I guess for, for us that have been using it, because it only started in what it, end of december january didn't it so some people still aren't really sure what it is so it's only at the moment it's still for only iphone users i think yeah i think by may of this year we can expect an android rollout um it is it is live audio only and um it think of it as um almost like talk radio in the sense of here are some experts discussing their ideas, talking about important topics. The difference is, um, one, you have this, this broad range of people you can, you can choose from. You just sort of wander down what they call the hallway, think of it as a radio dial, and find what's interesting, listen in. And unlike radio or, or a podcast, you can raise your hand. And all of a sudden, you can ask a question or contribute some thoughts and completely change the direction of the conversation. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I definitely advise anyone who's listening who's not checked it out yet, definitely have a listen and search for the Tiny Habits Club. Is it called a club room? And what's the what's the name of the? Uh, so yeah, uh, Tiny Habits Club. Club, right? Yeah, just search for that and um, see some of the discussions going on. And you'll hear Jeff's voice quite often. He's he's on there quite a lot, giving um, some great advice out to people. So be, before we finish, Jeff, is there any? aspects of habits or anything about tiny habits that, that I haven't asked you that you think will be good for, for people to know? I think that, that's a good question. <laughs> I think that we need to step away from, uh, for a moment from this sort of transactional nature and say, what am I, what am I getting out of this? What is the value of doing this for 20 seconds? What is the value of only doing one or two push-ups or taking a single mindful breath when I have these much larger aspirations? Mm. And so I would say, well, take a note from the tech industry and MVP everything. What is the minimum viable product of this big thing that you want to do? Can you do an easy version of it consistently? You'll be able to immediately get feedback on what's working and what's not. And often we find, even through tiny habits um, and iterating through them, the stuff that's great on paper doesn't work. And then the things that do work often come at you from surprising angles. So we really encourage people to be playful and be experimental with it. And the faster you get it iterating, the, the, the faster you're going to find what works for you. And this is also a meta skill. So as you, you know, I, I think of, you know, the proverbial getting back, uh, the idea of getting back on the horse. Right when we fall, we fall off constantly. If you are meditating, you are constantly falling off the horse. If you're trying a new business endeavor, you are constantly falling off the horse, and that can be sort of destabilizing. So, building the skills to more quickly get back on the horse and reduce the downtime by just being thrown for a loop um, with our our failures, of which we will have, they'll be myriad for the rest of our lives. That's part of the deal for being human. Um, the more successful you're going to be. And so um, the value may not be immediately apparent, but as you roll this out, you'll see it turn up in some surprising ways. I think that's a great piece of wisdom to end on. So Jeff, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And it's been a, a great episode. Thank you so much, Tony. It was fun. Next week, episode 17 with Tommy Berebi, who has gone through a lot of health issues. Well, a number of years ago, he went through a lot of health issues and now helps people with the issues that he was going through. He's a personal trainer, but he helps people also around different aspects of health. So that's next week's episode with Tommy Berebi. If you enjoyed this week's episode with Jeff Gervitz, please do share it with anyone who you feel would get some some real help from some of the, the stuff that sh- Jeff shared with us. And I hope you have a great week. Thanks for tuning in to the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Sign up for email updates and learn about coaching and workshop opportunities at TonyWinyard.com. See you next time on the Habits and Health Podcast.